This morning is the second Sunday of our Catechism Sundays. The last Sunday of every month, we are taking a break from our regular walk through a book of the Bible and are preaching topically using the New City Catechism as our syllabus, so to speak. So instead of us just preaching topics and saying, what do we want to hear about? What do we think we need to think about? We say, what will help us understand the basics of the faith better? And we use the New City Catechism as a syllabus for that, as a tool to say, here's the next topic we need to think about. So this morning, we are going to be on the second question, but I want to remind you a few things first. I want to remind you that the goals for these sermons are not to preach the catechism text, right? The catechism itself is not our scriptures. We preach God's word. He has given us his word and his scriptures. The catechisms are summaries of what God has given us. And so our goal in preaching these sermons is for you to be able to see that these summaries that we have are faithful summaries of what the scripture teaches the answer to the question is, right? We saw that last month when we looked at the question, what is our only hope in life and death? And we saw the scripture give testimony to this answer that our hope is that we belong to God and to our Savior, Christ Jesus. The first goal then is to show that this is a faithful summary of Scripture's teaching, but we don't just want to stop there. We want to also say, what does it mean and why is it important? The second goal is to help us hear and apply this summary as relevant to our life in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're going to aim for this morning as we go through. I'm going to take a page from Brother Charlie's book and try to use slides this morning. One of the things I mentioned last time is this is new to me preaching this way. And because I'm trying to show us that this is a faithful summary of what scripture teaches, we only have so much time, right? And this is a big book. And so to be able to help us see and follow along with the many places in scripture we look, we're going to put them up on the screen for you. I think it'll be helpful for all of us so that we can see the text together. We will open our Bibles this morning as well, because I think that's important too. So I'll tell you when and where to go. I want to start this morning, though, reminding us of last month's question and answer. I'm going to read the question. And would you humor me one more time by reading the answer with me? So what is our only hope in life and death, Sojourners Church, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we look at this and we think about our hope, it's really easy to just kind of be zeroed right into those words, Jesus Christ, right? We love singing and talking and reading about Christ. And rightly we should because the entire testimony of Scripture points to and culminates in Christ Jesus. It is right and good that our eyes and our thoughts are drawn there when we think about our hope, but we can so easily and quickly skip over that our hope is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our savior, Jesus Christ. We can skip over God, not because we don't think God is important, but because we can end up assuming that we know what we're talking about when we say God. We can end up assuming that the idea of God is self-explanatory. 
And friends, that would be a massive mistake. In our culture, if you ask someone if they believe in God, you will get a very, very high response rate of yes. Right? You can probably ask many of your friends who you know they don't believe in the God of the Bible, and you can ask them, do you believe in God? And they would say, yeah. If you leave it there, that's a huge mistake. If you leave it there thinking that the idea of God is self-explanatory, then you haven't really done the necessary work that we need to do. You see, what we tend to do if we leave the idea of God as self-explanatory is we tend to make God like us. Only more or a little bit better, right? God is kind of like me, only just a little bit more. Or a little bit better. In ancient cultures, they did this. The gods were a given in their society. And they either took their really awful characteristics and said the gods are worse. So they make us feel better about themselves. Or they took their lack of control over things like nature. And they said the gods are someone we can manipulate to make nature do what we want it to do. They did this in the medieval times when they looked around at their culture and said, you know what? The most important people in our culture are kings and lords. And so God is clearly like our feudal lords that rules over this little fiefdom. Or they, the Vikings, when trying to evangelize them, they said, God, Jesus is like a fierce warrior. He welds an axe and rages in battle. He's like you guys, only, only more so, only better. In the Enlightenment, when the idea of God became less necessary, it was common to view God in a deistic way. God is a divine watchmaker who starts things off and did pretty good creating everything, but he doesn't have any ongoing impact. We don't really need him other than for our existence. In modern culture, we don't even need him for our existence, right? We can explain everything without God, and so we're left with God as an idea. And this is where we get the idea that God is love, which scripture does say, but then we define it how we want to. God is kind of non-judgy and loves everybody and affirms what you feel about yourself is important. And he might, he might frown on some things, but he certainly doesn't punish, certainly doesn't judge, right? Or within the church, we can even make God like ourselves if we tend to lean more towards rules and structure and judgment. We can say God is a judge and you better watch out because he's standing up there in the sky just just waiting for you to screw up. And when he catches you, he's going to punish you. And I'm going to say, see, I told you so. Right? We make God like ourselves in our own image. If we assume we know who God is, that's what we will do. So we must ask the question. Question number two for our catechism What is God? We must ask this question, but it begins. There we go. I'm sorry. I'm still working on these, figuring out how to use these slides. It begins with this assumption that God is knowable. If we ask the question, what is God, which is our question today, we have to begin with the assumption that we can know something about God. And scripture tells us we can know something about God. That's the first thing I want us to see. Scripture tells us two very specific ways we know God. The first Paul talks about in Romans 1, 19 to 20. We can know God because God reveals himself in creation. Paul writes this. What can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about humankind. Because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He's talking about how we can see God in all of creation, right? Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. What God has done has shown himself. The problem Paul talks about in Romans 1 is that we, in our unrighteousness, in our sinful condition, suppress the truth. You see, what is no, can be known about God is plain because God has shown it, but we are sinners. And so we misinterpret that revelation. We look at creation and conclude something about God other than what God intends. Or we look at God's works throughout history and conclude something other than what God intends. Because sin distorts our understanding of God. This is why it is so important that God does not leave us to the creation alone to understand who he is. Creation alone is general revelation. It shows all of God. But God gives us special revelation. In what he speaks, God also shows us who he is. This is why 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 is so important. Paul writes this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, God speaks through his word and tells us how to interpret creation, how to interpret his works. God tells us what he means for us to know about these things. So when we look at the question, what is God, and we try to answer it, we look at those two kinds of places God has revealed himself. In his works, which is called general revelation, and in his word, where he has explicitly told us, which is called special revelation. So as we look through this question, what is God? And as we look at the answer today, we'll use that as our structure. We'll look at the works of God or what God does and the word of God or what God speaks. We'll see as we look at this that his works and his word both reveal him in the way this question is answered. Right? Let's look at the question one more time. Read the answer with me after I ask the question, please. What is God, Sojourners Church? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. As we go through our scriptures today, we will see that God's works and God's word testify to this reality. We're going to start looking at what God does. You see that in the answer to the question at the top and bottom of the question, right? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. This is what he does. It's who he is, yes, but it's also things that he does. Actions, right? Nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's where we're going to start this morning. Scripture testifies that God creates, right? This is very familiar to us. The Bible starts in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. All throughout Scripture, God is referred to 
as the creator, isn't he? And all throughout scripture, but most clearly and most specifically, we see that not only does God create and set things in motion, but he sustains. Hebrews 1.3, talking about Christ, who is the image of God, says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe, everything, everything possible, right? Everything and everyone in the universe is upheld or sustained by the word of Jesus Christ, by his continual sustaining. I want us to see those things in a bigger portion of scripture. So I want you to grab your Bible and open up to Psalm 104. Open up to Psalm 104 this morning. In this psalm, which is a rather lengthy one that I'm going to read for us, we see a celebration of the goodness of God in creating and sustaining everyone and everything. It's just over and over and over. And I want us to hear that language as we read through. Psalm 104, verse 1. Psalmist writes this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Notice that that's poetic language for creation. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations. Again, God is creator. So that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. So that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. Notice the sustaining language here. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. God is not only creator, but sustainer. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted in them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows it's time for setting. You made the darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from who from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you. 
God is sustainer. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Right? A beautiful meditation on God as creator and sustainer. You cannot look at a single corner of this world and not come up with the same thing the psalmist said. Right? God has given to all and sustains all. This is the testimony of God's works. In scripture. Not only does God. Create and sustain. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. But the answer to the question what is God. Ends with this phrase. Nothing happens except through him. And by his will. And that's an important phrase. In answer to who is God. Because not only. And you saw it in the psalm. Not only does he create all of this. And not only does he give, but if he withdraws his hand or withdraws his breath, he takes away, right? He governs all things. Jesus, reflecting on this with his disciples, encouraging them in the real danger that they were facing, says this about God's governance of all things. Matthew ten twenty eight to 31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then he looks to nature and he gives this example. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying that not one of those sparrows is spot and sold or dies. Apart from the will of the Father at work. And he's encouraging his disciples to say, nothing comes upon you except that which the Father has willed to come upon you. Except that which the Father governs. We're going to use that governing language to describe what is commonly known as God's providence. God sustaining everyone and everything in existence. If Jesus withdraws his hand from you, you will cease to exist. And God governing all things according to the purpose of his will. That combines together to form this idea of what's called God's providence. I want you to know what our church believes about God's providence according to our elder affirmation of faith. This is from article 3, section 2 on God's providence that says this. We believe, we believe that God upholds and governs all things. From galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins. 
nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. That's how we would describe what we believe about God's providence, God's governing, God's sustaining of all things. From galaxies to subatomic particles, everything in between is governed and sustained by God through Jesus Christ. Friends, God does this, his governing and sustaining of all things and his creating, as was alluded to in that definition, for the purposes of his glory, so that he might be known. And I want us to see that what we see in scripture is this testimony that God does these things so that we would know him, not just because they're good to do, but he does them purposefully. For you and I to come to know who he is so that we can answer the question, what is God? There's a couple places in Exodus I want us to see this. As the story of Exodus goes on, there's this repeated refrain that they may know that I am the Lord or something along those lines. And we see that in a couple places here on the screen, right? In Exodus 6, 6 to 7, as God is talking about what he will do and telling Moses what to say. He says this, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In other words, everything that God is going to do in bringing his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt is for the sake of them knowing that he is the Lord their God. That refrain repeats throughout the Old Testament. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He points back to that and says, This is how you know me, and this is how you know what I am like. Not only for God's people, though, for God's enemies, too. When he's talking to Pharaoh, he says this in Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In other words, as I stretch out my hand and as these plagues fall on Egypt, I will show that I am the Lord God. I will show that I am perfect in justice. That I am rescuing my people purposefully. That I govern and sustain all things. And in the wilderness, when God's people rebel against him, and he meets them with the quail that they wanted, makes it rain down on them, it's actually a judgment on them. Because they're not going to like it. And he says, even in his judgment, it's so that they shall know that he is the Lord their God. He says, I've heard the grumbling, Exodus 16, 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He's meeting their need, but what happens is this quail rains down, and they don't like it. And they say, oh, this is not good for us. They eat, and they, they become bitter. But they know that he is the Lord their God. All through the wilderness wanderings. God's people learn that lesson. God acts to show them who he is. See, this is important 
Because we observe God's actions. We see what God does. And we're meant to read it and say, I know what God's like. But our observations of his actions are not enough to know him. We need his revelation in his word. The whole Bible, this scripture, is given to us as an exposition of God's actions. God didn't leave us with just the testimony of creation to testify to his creating and sustaining all things. He left us with a word to explain it, right? He gave us in his word an explanation of his character through his actions as he creates and as he redeems. We see what he is like and how he reveals himself. So that's where we're going to turn to next. God reveals through what he says or how he speaks. He reveals in scripture that he is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. Look with me at briefly at a few scriptures for that. In Roman, or excuse me, Revelation 1.8, God says this. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Notice there's no, there's no beginning. There's no ending. It's eternal from beginning to end. That's what Alpha and Omega is. But God was before, right? In the beginning, God created. He wasn't created. He created everything else that existed, but he has always existed. And he always will. He is eternal. He is infinite, as we see in Romans eleven thirty three. Paul, as he's reflecting on God's wisdom, says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. They are so deep that you cannot search and find the end of them. That's what Paul is getting at. They are so wide that you cannot measure them. God's infiniteness is also found in his being in all places. The psalmist talks about in Psalm 139 that if he goes to the depths of Sheol, God is there. If he goes to the highest heavens, God is there. And there is nowhere he can go to escape from the presence of God. Because God is infinite. He cannot be measured as we think of measuring. Not only that, but God is unchangeable. In Malachi 3.6, He's talking to his people who have been faithless. And he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. He is not fickle and changeable based on his people. He is firm to his steadfast love and faithfulness to his covenant with his people. And so he says, therefore, you are not consumed, O Jacob, because I have made these promises to your forefathers. The Lord does not change. He is infinite and he is eternal. These things, God's eternal, infinite and unchangeableness, cares like I am, I have some good, right? But I am not wholly good. And my goodness could be measured if we could come up with a way to measure that. Or my power. I can measure some of my power concretely by how much I can lift, right? But that's not what God is like. He is in all these characteristics, the epitome of these characteristics and being eternal, infinite and unchangeable in his power, in his perfection, in his goodness, in his glory, in his wisdom, 
justice, and truth. Look at a couple examples of these. He's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in all his ways. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, the Lord, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. There is no way of his that is not just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. He is completely holy, completely good. Just and upright is he. Or Isaiah 40, 28 Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's power does not run out, right? He doesn't, he's not like us. The author of Isaiah says he's not like us and doesn't grow faint or grow weary. And so he's able to strengthen his people because he doesn't run out of energy. Or Psalm 145, 17, which sums it up. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. There is not one aspect of the Lord that is not powerful. Not, there's not one aspect of the Lord that's not perfect, not good, not glorious, not wise, not just and not true, right? All of the ways of the Lord are these things. That's what the testimony of Scripture tells us. As God reveals himself, he speaks sometimes directly in Scripture to his people. And the most clear revelation of who God is, what he most wants his people to know in the Old Testament, is when he passes before Moses and says who he is. We see that in Exodus 33, 18 to 19, and then 34, 5 to 7. You can read the whole narrative sometime, but I want to draw our attention to these particular texts. Moses says this to the Lord, please show me your glory. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there on the mountain and proclaimed his name. And here's what he said. The Lord passed before before him and proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. To the third and fourth generation. This is who God reveals himself as. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the epitome of his perfections. But this is not the end of his self-revelation you see. Because what does he do in the New Testament? He speaks. But it's through a word that's actually incarnate. You see, the greatest revelation of who God is, the greatest climactic speech of God is in his word, Jesus Christ. John puts it this way. He says, long ago, excuse me, the author of Hebrews says this first. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? Even when he's speaking through Moses, that's what he's doing. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And in this speech, this is how John writes about it. He says this, in the beginning was the word. This is harkening back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14 says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is talking about Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then we read a few verses down this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Jesus himself as the word of God is the climactic speech of God showing us what God is like. Showing us that God is eternal, infinite and unchangeable in his power, perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth. Jesus shows us all these things in person. He says this to his disciples later in John 14, after himself claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. He says this. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father... Who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So friends this is the cumulative testimony and consistent testimony of God's works and God's word. That God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite and unchangeable in his power, perfection goodness and glory wisdom justice and truth nothing happens except through him and by his will we have said that our goal in going through these catechism questions and in thinking about these things is to be first promoting sound doctrine so i want to think about how does this help us promote sound doctrine Psalm 86, 8 to 10 tells us that there's none like you among the gods, O Lord. None like our God among the gods. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. The God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone is God. And this question and answer, what is God? And all the things that we see testified in scripture helps us be sure that we are worshiping the God of the scriptures. That we are worshiping the God who is alone God and not a false God of our own making. Not a false God that we've imagined in our head or heard from culture or created from what we see around us. Right? The psalmist goes on to talk about how we should not assume that God is made of metal and that he is or made of wood or like other created things but he is unique he alone is god so it promotes sound doctrine to know this question and answer because it helps us know the true god and ensure that we are actually worshiping god not only that but it promotes evangelism and discipleship 
I want us to see, look at what Paul does when he's on the frontier doing evangelism in a pagan culture. In Athens, walking around, seeing all of their worship of false gods. Look where he goes. He says this. uh, Luke records, Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So here's a nation full of false gods. And... They even are so religious that they have a statue to the unknown God, just in case. Now look what Paul does. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. God is creator. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is sustainer. God governs all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice what Paul did. He goes, creator, sustainer, Governor of all things, who has revealed himself climactically in his word, right? This man who's going to judge the world and who he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. This helps us in our evangelism, in our discipleship. These are foundational truths that you must know. And they give us things to talk with our kids about and things to talk with our friends and family about. Starting with God as creator and sustainer is a fine evangelistic method. It was good for Paul. It's good for us because we don't live in a culture that starts there. And lastly, to promote Christian culture. To answer the way that this catechism promotes Christian culture, I want to actually refer us to another catechism. This is the catechism that we almost did, but it's like a hundred and some questions long and really complex and wordy in a lot of ways. And so uh, it's a good catechism, the Orthodox catechism, but it's not the one we're doing. However, they have questions like this. What does this knowledge of the creation and providence of God profit us? What good does it do us to know these things? Listen to how they answer. That in adversity, we may be patient. Knowing that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything And that he is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in all his ways. Helps us be patient in the midst of turmoil. In the midst of adversity. That we may be patient. In adversity we may be patient. And thankful in prosperity. Because every good thing comes from our Father. And have hereafter our chief hope reposed in God. In other words, that first question. What is our only hope in life and death? Because This is true of God and this is who God is. It is right to put our hope in him. 
That's what this is saying. Hereafter, our chief hope reposed in God, our most faithful father. We can be sure that there is nothing which may withdraw us from his love. That's Romans 8, right? For so much as all creatures are so in his power that without his will, they are not able to not only to do anything, but not so much as once to move. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. So friends, what is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power, perfection, goodness, and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And nothing happens except through him and by his will. And because that is true, we conclude with Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, right? Because that is true, this is true of us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great. Great indeed is his faithfulness. And so it is right for us to say, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray together. Lord, you are indeed our portion. And it is a good portion. It is a pleasant portion because of who you are. Who you've shown us that you are in all of your works, but especially in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us remember that as much as you have revealed yourself to be in ways that we can see even in ourselves and in all of creation, you are also other. There is none like you. There is none of us who are perfect in all of our ways. There is none of us And there is nothing and no one on this earth that we could possibly turn to that is like you. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us have our hope firmly anchored in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. Would you even firm that uh, anchor? Would you strengthen that faith now as we move to your table, we pray. Amen.